right. Hello, everyone. How are we today? Here's a new person. Okay, let me fix my volume here. One second. Um, yeah, that looks good. Okay. All right. So this is our last class before break. We have um, after break just two more plays. We're going to be looking at Gibson, uh, Gibson, Ibsen. And um, we're going to look at a film version of um, a Chekhov play, Uncle Vanya, and it's going to be Vanya on Forty Second Street. The you could you could get that on on Amazon, so it's one of the the few purchases you have to make. Um, and I'll let's see if I could put up a copy of the actual play Uncle Vanya as well. The the version we're looking at is going to be a, um, a David Mamet translation. Uh, so I might not be able to get you the David Mamet translation, but you could see the other ones as well. I actually have better translations here. So I'll take a look at that. Um, what else can we say? Oh, um, the volume keeps jumping on this and I don't know why. All right. Um, good. So the other thing to say is when we get back, we're also going to be looking at sub the support section of the paper, which is worth uh, like roughly 40% uh, of your paper is how you, you know, support it and put forward your arguments. So we're going to take a look at that. The actual paper itself is due on the 7th of December. Um, so that means not the week you get back, but the Monday, the second Monday you get back. So you get back the the 30th of November, the last day of the month, and then the, the week after that, the paper is due. And so we'll invest more time during that week in, in looking at support um, and so on and so forth. And then that'll be, that'll be what we do. And... Um, there you go. Now, in terms of uh, your your final paper, excuse me, your that is your final paper. In terms of your final exam, uh, has everyone been able to see when the the final exam is? It's on your your kind of net ID site. Do people know where that is? Where the the final exam listing is? I mean, I could tell you when we're going to do the final exam. It's it's on that Saturday, um, but you should probably. Okay, good. If if you don't know where it is, you should probably figure it out because I I imagine I'm not your only final exam, and I can't help you with that. But if you go to um, UConn Net ID, type that into Google. I think it's like the third one down. Type in login, and log into your Net ID. Go to self service. And then student center. I have to go to faculty center, so but that's the idea. And then our class is final exam is the nineteenth, the last day, the last time, three thirty to five thirty. Um, good. So that's when what we're going to do. Uh, I'm going to over the break. So there's there's plenty of time for the final exam. We have it. We 
don't have it for another month. Um, okay, don't have it for another month. Oh, thank you, Rachel. Uh, very helpful. Um, I'm going to put together over the the break a uh, a study guide for it. What we're probably going to do is probably have a kind of short form and long form essay portion. The idea, if you want to prepare for it over the break, though I'd say spend more time working on your paper if you're going to uh, if you're going to work on this class at all, is to look at groupings of plays, looking how you can put plays together in groups of two or three in order to find um, common themes. So, uh, for example, the group of three plays that we're starting for this last section of class is is kind of movements towards realism and how realism comes about. Uh, that's, you know, melodrama and uh, Ibsen and Chekhov. Um, and so these are three very different types of plays. However, they're also very similar in a lot of ways and identifying those similarities within um, the text or within the, the historical context that we discussed, that's going to come up. So that's something to look at, you know, how can I group two or three plays together, right? If I really like talking about um, the braggart soldier, what can I group that with? What two or three plays can I, what two other plays or what other play can I group the braggart soldier with? Um, yeah, so that that's going to be a a portion of it. The other thing to look at if you want to prepare is have a rough idea of the plots of these plays. Um, I think it is probably a, <laughs> I, I'm not going to ask you the names of characters, like it's not going to be a quiz on um, what is the braggart soldier's name, because honestly right now I don't even remember. So, and I think that's kind of, um, it, it's the type of information you will forget 30 minutes after the exam is over, so there's no point in stuffing it in your head. However, by being able to remember the, the damn plots of these things, you'll be able to kind of answer these, these short answer questions. And the point will end up being to be able to synthesize information, that is, synthesize different plays and different themes and different plays together. Uh, that's, that's what the final exam is really going to be testing more than anything else. Um, and you can't do that without actually having, you know, knowledge of literally the actions of the play. Um, if you've attended class, I don't think it should be a problem. That's like a lot of stuff we talked about in class. Okay. Any questions about any of that? Are you going to be um, making like an announcement for this or like sending out an email? Or just putting it in written form so we can kind of refer back to it. In terms of a study guide? Kind of, yeah. Yeah, I, I will, what I'll do is I'll, I'll put a um, the kind of content email out, you know, have an announcement, and then I'll just put it in a folder, a content folder. So you could go on Husky CT and grab it. Okay, sounds good. Thank mm -hmm. you. Yep. Okay. Great. Uh, and then I'll try and open, during study week, I'll try and open some time so that you can, if you want to talk to me about, you know, these plays or some ideas you have, that, that'll be 
That'll be cool with me. But anyway, let's get into our last day on uh, this play here, Under the Gaslight. And what I want to do today is talk, have a relax a little bit because we have, you know, like 40 minutes or whatnot until, except Chuck. Chuck has a lot of time until the break. Um, but let's take take it easy today. What I want to do is take a look at a melodramatic movie, a short film. It's only about 12 minutes long from, um, from what do we call it? From the, from the early 19-teens? It might actually be from 1909. And I want to talk about the characteristics of this movie with attention to two things specifically and class issues kind of how those how those problems are depicted um, and we're going to overlap that with uh, with under the gaslight and then also performance style because we can't obviously because we're reading under the gaslight we can't see the performance style but i think the the kind of melodramatic performance style seems to be somewhat similar to what we're going to be watching in this film so let's go to it. Okay. And if people are having trouble seeing it or whatnot, let me know so that we can do something about it. Okay, how was that? Good.
Okay. Great. So, how's the? Oh, yeah. Got to turn down the mic now. <laughs> All right. There we go. That doesn't seem to be completely painful on people's ears. Um, so let's talk about about this and uh, about the gaslight um, under the gaslight. And what I want to discuss there is um, taking a look at that scene and uh, discussing it, the, the kind of the social relations, how class is portrayed and how we see, you know, the, the poor and the rich. Um, and let's compare that to how class is um, portrayed in in the play. Right. So what do we see in terms of um, in terms of how the lower class is is operating or shown to operate? in Under the Gaslight. Um, in Under the Gaslight, there's a lot of, like, depictions that, like, the poorer class is, like, lazy or uneducated or, like, that they rely on thievery or, like, deception in order to get by. Um, whereas in that movie, it shows that, like, they're actually the ones working hard and you know doing the things that are needed to make sure that like green is produced properly and all that stuff so there's a very big distinction okay so you see a big difference there good that that in um the the corner on cotton we see the I, like the lower class uh maybe more valorized than in under the gaslight Let's take a look at the the scene where we kind of get the the a situation in which we see kind of a social action occurring, namely the the court scene. So I believe that's uh, pages twenty one and twenty two in the play, and I want to take a look at at Rachel's position vis a vis this scene, um, and I just skimmed right past it. And I want to explore the this idea of um, how the play is actually depicting these people. Uh, is Rachel right? Are, are they just kind of either lazy or um, villainous? You know, we get obviously <laughs> uh, uh, we do have villainous people from from the underclass. Um, or is there some kind of critique of this? I'm kind of interested in what people think, um, but we can see that, especially in relation to the the court scene. If anybody knows what I'm talking about, it's the scene where uh, you see a bunch of people kind of go on trial, um, and it ends with you know Laura going on trial in front of um, with her father in order to in order for him to kind of claim possession of her. So, if we take a look at that, reading it through, what do you guys think of that uh, of that scene? I mean, I would say it kind of backs up my point a okay. little bit. Um, okay. You have the people on trial mm -hmm. as a guy who's like lying about, you know, where he's from, and he has a monkey. 
Mm-hmm. Like, this isn't the first time he's been stopped by the police. Mm-hmm. Um, you have a pickpocket. And then you also have, like, a drunken dude mm-hmm. who's, like, drunk and disorderly. Mm-hmm. So, like, you know, okay. Actually, I amend my statement. Okay. In a way, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, a lot of this is people doing what they can to get by. Mm-hmm. Um, but I feel like in this case, it's more villainized um, than in the movie. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, like, no one is pickpocketing because they really want to. It's because they have to in order to survive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, good. So th- there's this idea you're kind of amending to say that these people here... Uh, and I'm sorry, it's it's page 31, not uh, not 21. I I misspoke. So it's uh, 30... 31 is where scene... 31 in the um, PDF, 30 in the actual in-text is where the scene starts. But anyway, so... I think what Rachel what you're pointing out here is that there is this kind of um, you know kind of villainy going on uh, but there might be some kind of social whatever you call it social mechanism that's allowing it to prosper um, or not allowing it to prosper forcing people into that scenario and one thing I take a look at is um, Sam how Sam is treated in this by this this institution so sam we've met him before he's the person who takes the coats in the um the hoity-toity club and uh how is sam treated here not great <laughs> yeah mm-hmm. um there's a lot of racist shit going on mm-hmm. sorry racist stuff um, you could say shit if you want <laughs> okay. it, 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 apparently it bleeps you in the in the the ca- content caption which is very really? funny yeah look say shit and you could say it anyway that's that's, that's not the point of this this conversation um but please uh what were we gonna say mm-hmm. uh yeah so there's a lot of racist stuff um he talks about, you know, like, having no money for a lawyer, um, and just, like, it, it's clear that, or they say that he's he's been in there before for, like, a drunken disorderly, so, like, this mm-hmm. isn't the first time, but at the same time, you know, you have to think how many people are drunk on the streets and they choose this guy to mm-hmm. pick up, you know? Um, so, very much a racist aspect to that. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I think that's what you, what you see with a lot of these plays is um, there is not just a sense of like the the underclass uh, who's a bunch of bad people you know, are, are just criminal. There's sort of a a lot of times kind of a social critique of it as well. And you have to remember in that the people who are writing these plays aren't necessarily. Um, coming from the same kind of environment that somebody like Moliere would come from. They're probably closer to somebody like Shakespeare. They're coming from working class. Now, a lot of these writers then make a lot of money here, but uh, but they're also serving. A lot of the people who are going to these plays are people who are, you know, kind of lower-income people. And so you end up getting these kind of... When you see the, the lower-class people... Um, being depicted 
that's kind of the people who the audience would probably more identify with. Uh, and so there typically is a, a, a somewhat difficult relationship with high society people, right? The, the high society people in this play are not depicted well either. I'd actually say with the exception of Ray, um, they all kind of come off crappy, right? They, you know, it's, it's, it's uh, like kind of hilarious almost how, um, how stereotypically uh, hoity-toity they are. Um, society won't accept it. I, I'm, I'm sure no one in earnest has ever said society won't accept it, but they, they're super into saying it in this play. Uh, and so a lot of times there's a, a connection between the lower and upper classes that that's, you know, kind of one of exploitation, regardless of what you think of the theory of exploitation or, or which theory of exploitation you subscribe to. Um, now, going back, go ahead. Oh, I just, I wanted to say, I honestly kind of interpreted that whole scene a little differently. Okay. I felt like it was kind of showing like an unfairness to the law in a sense. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, these mm -hmm. people, they come in and they haven't really actually done anything that wrong, or at least they're definitely defended in that sense. And I feel like a good point is made and they're still just thrown in jail. Mm -hmm. And I definitely do sense that, like, you know, like that angst between the upper class and the lower class. And I feel like it was very much so depicted in what we just watched as well. Mm -hmm. You know, like they do all the work, but then all the rich people get to just sit there and enjoy it. And they're like breaking their back and can't even buy a loaf of bread. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's a good point. There's, there's kind of an institutional critique there as well. It's not just, uh, you know, it's not just the, the, the upper classes aren't necessarily the problem in the scene in the court in, in act two, scene two, it's, it's this, this institution. Um, Good, yeah. And so those, those kind of things begin to, to go on in melodrama. And they, you know, survive to today. Um, and you're also going to see them later, like realist writers uh, in the next generation, you know, people like Ibsen. Um, it, it's not the case in the play we're reading from Ibsen, but Ibsen does have what, what are called social problem plays, which are plays which deal with exactly what that sounds like, a, a social problem. Um, because, so we have that and we have I think in the movie maybe more of a cause and effect thing that's very clear like the kind of the rich people are causing the poor people to be poor um, you know which maybe not economically true but it's true in the perspective that a lot of these writers are putting forward now another thing I want to talk about with and why we brought the, the movie in or why I brought the movie in is the performance style. It's kind of a different different turn here. Um, but from what I can tell, from what I, I've read, the performance style in the movie is a somewhat muted version of the performance style on the stage that you would see used for Under the Gaslight. Um, you could get this from which actors were most highly praised in that, that period uh, roughly after the Civil War, so Sarah Bernhardt is, is the most famous of the performers at this time. Um, and it, you can actually see YouTube videos of her her performing. There's not a lot of a lot of them. Uh, film came in towards the end of her life. Um, but they're somewhat more exaggerated versions of, of what we saw. So what do you guys get from the performances? Kind of describe the style. 
Or maybe maybe another way to ask the question is, um, what differs from a performance you might think of as realistic and the performances in the movie? Well, the movie was um, no sound. There's a word for that, and I'm silent. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> there we go. Okay. <laughs> it was Almost film. break. Don't worry. Mm-hmm. Oh, we're getting there. Um, <laughs> so it was a silent film. So all of your actions have to be very pronounced in mm-hmm. order to like convey the meaning, and because of that, they have to also be very like dramatic mm-hmm. and um, you know, kind of hence melodrama. Um, but just very over the top, very exaggerated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, good. Um, yeah, and so we have, and, and that would probably be true of the stage too, because even though you can hear things on on the stage, and you have that benefit, um, you are still playing to the back row, right? So you don't have the camera right up in somebody's face or framed close enough as if you're in the front row. There's a galley that you have to that you have to play to. Um, and so the, these kind of performances, that, that kind of size, even though it's in part compensating for the silence, the fact that they have to sort of gesture out what's being said, um, would have a, you, you would have a reason to use that style on the stage. Um, so, so gesturing a lot in silent films comes in part because there is a premium on using fewer rather than more intertitles. Intertitles are the things between the scenes that that tell you what's going on as opposed to subtitles um, or supertitles. And, uh, you know, this, so there was like, there was a famous competition between Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin about who could use fewer intertitles in a two-hour movie. That, that was kind of the thing. But anyway, we do have this idea of of the performance style as being large, um, and the the emotions are kind of essential to melodrama. Now that seems kind of like a stupid statement. Aren't emotions essential to Shakespeare or every single thing that we read? Um, but what I mean by that, by by emotion being essential, is that it was the emotion not necessarily the motivation that was important in these plays. So the motivation is in the play, right? People talk about why they're doing things. They're not just randomly acting, you know, like maybe something you would see in Artaud or something like that. However, the unconscious motivation, the, the um, you know, the kind of deep dive into a character's psyche that you would do in order to find out their kind of, their, their, deeper motivation for doing something that doesn't really exist in these plays. These plays are pushing things to the surface. And the the thing that was appreciated about performers was the thing that made them virtuosos was that they were able to identify a character by an emotion. They're able to demonstrate an emotion using, you know, using their, their, their physical person. Not necessarily that they were slices of life, right? That they were drawn from the real world. Um, and what we have as we go into to next week, and not next week, but as we go into to Ibsen and, and especially Chekhov is that the realism of this, of this style remains. Not the style of acting, excuse me. The realism of like the set stuff, 
of things looking real as opposed to you just sort of imagining it. Um, that remains, but the the avant-garde of this period begin to reject the kind of the um, the virtuosity of these kind of emotion-first displays. And so what you're seeing here, really at this time, um, and also in the time of Under the Gaslight and in the time of the D.W. Griffith short, which was 1909, 1910, right around there when it came out, um, is a conflict in acting, in performance. Uh, we Do we want... Um, realism, as in finding something deep inside the person that allows us to recognize real life on stage, or are we going to do this kind of very popular scream it to the back row type uh, type of performance? Um, and I'd say for most of performance history, it was scream it to the back row. Uh, and e e that's including with Shakespeare, you know, everybody in every generation says my performance style is more realistic than yours. Realism is always the, the uh, mark of quality. However, what counts as realistic changes in Shakespeare's day. And even through the 18th century, realism is seen as kind of beauty, right? Uh, there, there isn't a, what you might call natural or biological realism. What realism is, is, you know, um, the statue of the David, right? Michelangelo's the David, uh, a human form that's recognizable, but also kind of perfect and, and beautiful. Um, something you want to be something, uh, you know, perfectly symmetrical and, and, um, well posed and things like that. You wouldn't as a person until really the middle of the 19th century ever think of realism as as equating or being equated with naturalism with being natural that's a kind of different quality um and you know that that's what's going on here and i, I just wanted to show that you know you guys what that sort of performance looks like um a, a muted version of it but still what that that kind of performance looks like because when we get to see uh, Vanya on 42nd Street where we see you know pretty great realistic performances done in the mold of um you know of the kind of the second generation of, of realist acting you could kind of see the distinction and see what is a you know what is a real conflict going on in theater um yeah but anyway so that that's kind of the point point of that there uh but let's jump jump back in the play because i was talking a lot um let's take a look at the big melodramatic scene in the play which is the scene in which um we have one of our favorite characters snorky tied to railroad tracks and i'll let you know that this became as you can imagine immensely popular Tying people we don't want to die to railroad tracks was was in for for many decades, um, but let's go to that scene and can somebody lay out the the details of that scene? What actually has happened there?
Uh, what page number was it on? That was 52 to 58. Um, so basically, Laura is running away again, mm-hmm. and so she's at the train station, mm-hmm. obviously. Um, she convinces the um, signalman to like lock her in the shack that mm-hmm. they keep like stuff in. Mm-hmm. Um, so that she'll be kind of like safe for the night. Yeah, including lots of axes. This is where they put yeah. all of their axes that they need. Yeah. As one does. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, let's see. Um, Snorky obviously shows up because um, he found out that Bike and um, Judas are going to, you know, the mansion to rob them and probably murder them. Mm-hmm. Um, so he kind of shows up and they tie him to the train tracks. And so she has to like bust out with the axe and rescue him. Mm-hmm. It's a whole thing. Yeah. So this is, this is the height of action, right? And this is why people are buying the ticket because they want to see the, you know, the big dramatic action in which somebody is saved at the very last minute. Um, good. And, and so what ends up happening at the very end? What does Snorky say? You know, he gets freed. She she pulls him off the train tracks, just as the noise of the locomotive is heard with whistle. He mentions how like women can't vote. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's it's sort of like critic uh, uh, being critical of that, right? That you know this this woman saved me. You know these are the women to ain't have a vote. So there's a bit of a suffrage a suffrage message embodied there. Um, why do you think that, what do you think that is doing there? Because that, that's an unusual pairing, right? A sort of, um, a suffrage message and the most famous melodramatic action in, you know, in this type of theater. Why do you think these things are paired? Well, I mean, the entire fact that, like, she is the one that manages to break out and has to save him. So, in essence, like, she is, you know, the hero of, like, the scene and mm-hmm. most of the story, too. Like, I feel like she's the only one who really, like, has her head screwed on, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think that goes, it, it, it's definitely, like, a social commentary, like, political commentary. Mm-hmm. Um, so, assumably, like, connecting the two. Um, it makes it memorable because you know obviously you said that the scene was super popular mm-hmm. um, and then I'm assuming it also like kind of takes people by surprise too something they're not expecting so like that kind of adds an element of excitement mm-hmm. to it all as well yeah yeah I think so I think obviously um, putting the saying anything in the most exciting part of the player, the most memorable part of of a production is is going to then resonate more. Um, so the, yeah, I, I think that's definitely the case. And 
I think what you're seeing too with this is the you're also seeing two most modern parts of melodrama paired together, which is spectacle, uh, and and spectacle isn't new, right? But but spectacle in this way is new, and also this sort of um, somewhat progressive attitudes they have, and these things are are really bound together in this one scene, and you know why to us this this play or the movie might feel kind of old or dusty in a way that you know even Shakespeare doesn't right Shakespeare feels to me anyway I don't know what you guys think far more alive than than this play than under the gaslight um however in its day you had not seen that kind of realistic spectacle before you had seen spectacle in let's say opera and things like that but um, you'd seen spectacle as we saw with the uh, with the masks of Ben Johnson and Indigo Jones that we talked about several weeks ago, but you haven't seen spectacle that is uh, detailed as realistically as this is, and spectacle made for um, kind of lower class people, right? Not to this extent, and so that's a that's this kind of modern indicator, and it's why melodrama became not initially but eventually the style in which early cinema worked because early cinema became you know certainly by the 19 teens and definitely by the 1920s the kind of the the media of the masses that's what people were were looking at um and it's kind of important to remember that that spectacle and this kind of you know kind of progressive thing these these are two modern aspects that melodrama is bringing out and putting forward and melodrama is this this very modern thing it's kind of embracing the technology that allows it to you know sell its tickets and it's also consequently kind of embracing sort of modern ideas about politics or society or what have you that are also going on and that these writers and these producers feel their um, feel their audiences are dealing with and so even when we look at these kind of older older movies the silent movies and they might seem um, they might seem uh, retrograde might be a word for them of their time um, kind of maybe in some cases calcified in their time think about them in terms of their the the context in which they're working and you could see that often um film melodrama is working within a modern context and trying constantly to address the modernity in which they find themselves which isn't our modern you know we're not (laughs) we're not people of the 1860s or uh, 19 teens but that seems to be what's going forward is a concern with what's recent what's happening what's modern and we're going to see that um, emphasized in sort of the the more avant-garde styles that are occurring in Europe at this time and that's what we're going to be doing uh, in the next two weeks and so I will I'll sign off there if anything anybody excuse me has anything else to say please do if not you are free to enjoy your break and thank you thank you thank you you too
I'll stay on here for office hours if anybody needs them. 